Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 3, Episode 15, Time is on My Side. Let's get this show on the road. Hi, everyone. Due to a small technical glitch, my audio quality definitely drops off partway through the episode. I apologize for the inconvenience and hope you can enjoy the episode anyways. It is surreal to me that we're already at the penultimate episode of season three. The last like maybe like five episodes. So I have a bad habit whenever I go to, like a service like Amazon or Netflix. I never trust the play next episode. I always go and like pick it manually because my Netflix is cursed, apparently. Story for another day. And I kept looking, being like, no, I can't be on this episode already. There's only like three left. And I'd go, no, no, I'm on this episode. Oh, there's only one more after this. It doesn't seem real. We are one episode closer to you meeting Cass. Oh, I'm so excited. I know. I know. I'm so excited. All right. Are you excited for this recap, though? Not really, but we'll get to that later. (laughs) All right. I'll count you down. Three, two, one, go. The brothers are on full-on research mode, trying to find a way to save Dean from his deal. They eventually come across a possible case that Bobby put them on, which might be zombies. So Dean's excited. Why not go kill some zombies? That's awesome. Turns out it's not zombies. It might be some sort of weird immortal alchemist who Sam kind of thought it was already and was hoping it was because he figured he could use this to try to figure things out. We then get introduced to Rufus through Bobby, who apparently has contact with Bella. So Dean's like, I'm going to go after Bella. And Sam's like, I'm going to stay here and go after what not a zombie is and hopefully find a way to save your life. Neither one is successful. One finds Bella and not the cult, but does make a new friend in Rufus, I guess. And then Sam does find the doctor and save some chick, but then almost gets his eyes scooped out and then Dean has to save his life. And then they just opt to bury him alive because he won't die and they don't get anything out of it. So mood point, except for Bella's really sad ending time. That's basically what this episode is about. There's a lot of like meat and potatoes behind this like kind of disappointing episode when you think about it. It's like, I like what we learned, but everything was so bland. I think that's a really nice way to put it. I agree. I definitely agree. All right, let's move into the long game so that we can get right to story time. Let's do it. Like you said, we are introduced to Rufus. I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on Rufus, actually. (laughs) I like Rufus a lot. I'll say that right now. I expected as much, frankly, and I think our listeners did too. (laughs) This is also the first time that a monster of the week is put in a box. In this case, it's a fridge because it can't be killed. And there's going to be a callback to this in later seasons. I think this is a creative way to deal with this thing, knowing they couldn't kill it. I have many questions about other things you could have done to it, and I'm surprised that John didn't do, but we can harp on that later. Oh, we can be disappointed with John later. Let's move into story time for now. (laughs) Let's go. So this week, we meet the brothers in the middle of a holy water doused demon interrogation. (laughs) So they're basically trying to find out who holds Dean's contract, and it's not going super well for them. Because clearly the contract is being held by some sort of like big name demon that no other demon really wants to cross. 
I'll be honest, at this point, I had already guessed who was going to be holding his contract, and though it is confirmed later this episode, not really a shocker. Again, kind of one of those, like, this could have been a good reveal, but it just seemed like this was the obvious route to take. Especially with the setup that's been kind of like building up over the last few episodes. Like we knew that Lilith was going to be the next big bad. And so like this kind of felt like a natural evolution, I guess, of the show. So not not too shocking, but definitely like in a good way also kind of thing. Like it feels like we knew where this was going. And so that's reassuring because it means that you're reading the media properly. When you can figure it out and don't feel proud of yourself because it seems so telegraphed that it sort of seems like, oh, okay, I guess. That's definitely fair. So let's start counting the disappointments. So disappointment number one. (laughs) Okay, disappointment number one is discovering Lilith holds the contract was way too easy. Did you notice, though, how they went on from that to their Monster of the Week hunt? Because I really felt like it was so much smoother than last week. And I wasn't mad that they were going on this hunt the way that I was mad last week. I think last week I like pitched like a better way to write the episode just to get to the monster of the week. And that's what they did here. They basically had secretly this was Sam's attempt to go after something they thought was helpful. But he knew that it might be too weird for Dean. So he positioned it as a zombie hunt, which he knew Dean would be super gung ho for. This is like the opposite of disappointment for once. This is like a golden like moment. And that's probably why, as much as we're kind of feeling very underwhelmed with this episode, we don't, or I don't feel like I hate it the way that I really hated the last one. I kind of had that moment, too, where I finished this episode and was kind of, like, very, like, blasé about the whole thing. And then I kind of thought about, like, last episode being like, no, we really, the episode was really bad. This one was actually, like, it was boring but wasn't bad. I agree. So... Just when they start to investigate, we find out that this is a leftover John case, which, and I cannot stress this enough, is never a good sign. I'll be curious to dig into that a bit more. I feel like we've had a few leftover John cases up till now, and yeah, they've generally been pretty bad. But also, I feel like, how did John rip this thing's heart out and not think to do anything else? Like, at the bare minimum, burn the body. Listen, until I started listening to On the Road with Supernatural, I went along with the narrative that John is a great hunter, because that's really the narrative that's being pushed by the show, by Supernatural itself. Through listening to the podcast On the Road, I kept kind of like hearing the co-hosts talk about how like, John is actually a pretty terrible hunter. Like, there's a lot of basic knowledge that he doesn't have. He didn't even know that vampires were still a thing until, like, he meets them in in at the end of season one in uh, Dead Man's Blood. You know, he was wrong about werewolf uh, lore. He was wrong about another type of lore. And here he messes up again. And that's kind of what I'm saying. Whenever they're picking up John cases, it always seems to be, like, a big mess that they're trying to clean Yeah, pretty much every case where John is kind of leaving something unfinished. Yes, John is the one leaving the unfinished business, and then the boys are there to try to clean up whatever he left unfinished. This is actually also where we find out what the episode and the moral dilemma is going to be about. What would you do if you could become immortal, but in order to do that, you had to murder people to do it? So many stories have done before, not to say that it's not worth doing. I mean, it's just a great 
experiment. It's a great thought process. And it does raise for a pretty decent plot point in this episode. Exactly. And I feel like it fits right in with like the broader theme of the show or some of the broader themes of like Supernatural in general, because I feel like so much of Supernatural is really about like the choices that the brothers make each episode and how these choices make them who they are. And not even just the making of the choice, but also just the thought process in getting there. I mean, you can tell that Dean is very much not on board with the plan, but Sam is like, I know it's a bad idea, but can we try it anyways to be safe? Can we consider it? Like, can it be an option? Can it be on the table? Kind of like in Justin Bellow, where he's kind of, you know, considering sacrificing the virgin. And we'll, we'll get back to that. As an aside, okay, I really enjoyed the whole Sam trying to gross out Dean. <laughs> I just think it's such a sibling thing to do. Like my sister and I used to do it to each other all the time. And it's just, it, it brings back memories of childhood. That is cute. My brothers and I never really got that. But like, I totally see that brotherly sibling-y bond moment there, which is cute. And right after that, uh, you know, they basically f go from that to a fight that they have in the motel room still about whether they should go after Bella or finish the case. And I kind of want to break it down together. Sam wants to stay and finish the case, and Dean wants to go and get Bella and get the colt. And both of them are sticking to their guns in this case because, like, in their mind, the best way to make sure that Dean gets out of his deal is to go with their own way of going about it. So their end goal is the same, but the way that they want to go about it is really completely different. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the first times we really get a decision or kind of like an argument between the brothers where neither one is right or wrong. I hadn't thought about it that way. Ultimately, they're both wrong. Like, it's kind of just like, it sucks that, you know, do or don't, you're screwed. But I just feel like in so many other episodes, when there's been like a debate or an argument, it's been easy to side with one of them. Like later in the episode, we find out that if they had gone only with Sam's plan, like Dean could have reached immortality, but then it would have meant having to murder a bunch of people. But I think that's kind of the point, though, is the fact that in the end, we do sort of get the best of both worlds. As weird as it is to say that in this case, Dean goes after Bella, doesn't get the gun, but at least, you know, confirms that it's gone. And then ultimately gets back in time to save Sam and thus get what Sam wanted, which was the we have the book, we have his notes. With his help, we can learn how to do you know the whole immortality thing. But Dean is just not down with the idea of like having to live his life the way this doctor has. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is the part to me that matters the most, that even if that had been the only option, Dean wouldn't have taken it, I don't think anyway. And I think that Something that's also really important here is that Sam says no. Like, he's not going to go and get Bella. And I think it's important because this season, we've really had quite a few episodes where the brothers are dealing with separate issues. They're in the same episode, going towards the same goal, but they are going about it in different ways again. So if you think about the kids are all right, Dean is busy with Ben and Lisa, and Sam is busy with Ruby. In Sin City, Dean is busy with Casey while Sam is trying to use holy water on humans, right? Uh, 
in Dream a Little Dream of Me, they're both in their separate dreams. In Mystery Spot, Sam is living without Dean for six months because of the trickster. In Ghost Facers, Sam is kidnapped and Dean is stuck with the Ghost Facers. In Long Distance Call, Dean is sent by the Krakata after an in- after an innocent man, and Sam goes after the wrong person, but ends up finding the Krakata anyway. And now this episode, and I just feel like in previous seasons when the storylines are separate, it's because Sam is put in danger and I'm thinking about like All Hell Breaks Loose or Crow Toen or Sam Walks Away like Scarecrow. But this season, we're really seeing the brothers kind of like go off on their, like go off uh, or stray from their mutual path. Let's put it this way. Like that was the thing that I think hit me the most was watching this was the idea that I really thought like this was the best solution, like go your separate ways and each solo this adventure. Like this doesn't seem like the wrong choice in this case. I don't think I'm putting a a judgment value on it, like a moral value. I think I'm just noticing it because it's unusual. I think it shows growth. The fact that they're able to, as much as it kind of ends, it kind of spawns as an argument and kind of ends on, I don't want to say good terms, but it doesn't end with like one of them like slamming the door and being mad at the other one. It's very much, you well, know, I want to do this. You want to do that. Both are valid. Both have merit. But we should really be doing one of these things or we split up and each do our own thing. And they kind of begrudgingly agree. It's weirdly against all this codependency we've seen before. This is also the season where I find that the codependency gets really like visible. You start being able to see it. And yet in this episode, they're actually being like grown-ups about it, which is interesting. It's it's mixed signals is what we're getting from these boys. We finally get to Rufus's introduction. Okay, first tell me all about what you think of Rufus. <laughs> well, if I'm not mistaken, I think the first time he was brought up, I thought he might have been a dog. You always think that everyone is a dog, Drew. This is not news. Is Benny a dog? (laughs) Until I get proof they're not a dog, they're a dog in my cannon. Except for Cass. Cass is still three cats in a trench coat. Until further proven. I love the idea of Rufus. I love this, like, grouchy, older, you know, like, he's seen it all and he's done with it. Now he's just, like, living out the rest of his days. Like, it's kind of sad, but I kind of, I, I, I get him. And I think him acting as a mirror to Dean in the way that this is what you have to look forward to, even if you do survive, is just so upsetting and hard to see. But there's also this little bit of like this tiny bit of jovialness to him, like he kind of enjoys his life. Like the moment where he pulls out the blue label uh, Johnny Walker, which again, I've tried it is good. I get it. But that he's like, I won't even like take out a glass for anything cheaper than this. And Dean is still so young and naive. He's like, I get one out of plastic bottles. Like, it just shows the maturity. Oh, no, I loved it. I love Rufus. I find it interesting that he refused entry to Dean into his home. Because we've seen Dean particularly charm his way into so many places and homes and situations. And Rufus is having none of it. And it really, to me, speaks to, like, who he is and the experiences that he's had and, like, the people that he knows. Like, he knows not to trust, like, this young-ass white boy. Like, he's like, no, 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 no. (laughs) 
You are not coming into my house until he pulls out the Johnny Walker blue, of course. But I just find that it's a nice change of pace and it really gives Rufus like so much personality in a really, really small amount of time. I want to go back also to what you were saying about Rufus saying that this is what you have to look forward to if you survive, because that's not the first thing he tells him. The very first thing that he tells him is, folks like us, there ain't no happy ending. And then he says, I'm what you got to look forward to if you survive. Because like, if we break that down a little bit, he's telling Dean that hunters die a bloody death and those who don't end up living in paranoia and loneliness. And it's like, oh... Yeah, it's it's not like a as much as I love him, he's not a happy ending. No, that is not a that is not a life to aspire to, although this generation would probably argue with me. <laughs> what do you mean living living alone <laughs> with your cameras living alone looking outside? With your cameras and just drinking and being alone. <laughs> that's that's true. Being alone and enjoying your snacks, that's very important. Hashtag yeah. pandemic life. <laughs> Ooh. I think if it's a choice, it's much more powerful than if it's like the only option you're left with, right? Yeah, but I think what they're trying to get to is that it's the level of paranoia, the level of distrust, the level of stress that it's put you under. This is all there really is left to do. I fully agree with you. And that's kind of, that's exactly what I think we're getting to, right? Like we're joking about the whole like our gen- millennials would love this, but also like, Let's let's be clear about the level of trauma that this kind of hints at, right? All right, can we flash forward to when Dean catches up with Bella? All right, so she's in her trench coat, and she tells him that she no longer has the colt. It's gone somewhere. Buyer has it or whatever. And we understand that Bella also made a deal 10 years ago and that her time is up. There's a couple of things here. Do you remember in Red Sky at Morning when Dean asks Bella why she's behaving the way she does? And he goes like, did daddy not give you enough hugs? Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, so we're bringing that back here. It's basically strongly hinted at that her father was sexually abusing her and that the deal that she made when she was 14 was to protect herself from him. We knew from Red Sky at Morning that she was somehow like responsible or involved in her parents' death, but this episode really kind of like crystallizes the how and the why. Even though she plays it off into Dean's kind of thinking of like, yeah, no, totally, I was just terrible and wanted them dead so I could get money, which doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, but you know why she's doing that. She's trying to coax Dean to shoot her. Exactly, right? Like, she she doesn't tell Dean what actually happened. It's only us. We know about it because we see the flashback. Um, But she's basically telling him, like, no, they were lovely people. I just killed them because I wanted to get rich. And I don't care about you. I don't care about them. Like, I can't be bothered. But really, at the end of the day, like, she's trying to get Dean to shoot her. And she knows that he won't shoot her in, in cold blood. Like, she's said that. So she needs to make him angry. But then he doesn't because he notices the devil's shoestring on top of the door and he's piecing all that together really quickly and he decides to to leave instead. Like if we can just break away for a second, like I really wanted more from Bella and I think this is a great piece of her story, not the ending she deserves. I agree. I fully agree. I mean, very little growth. I have some thoughts about that that I'd like to keep for a little bit later on, if you don't mind. But I absolutely have thoughts about Bella. I just, 
one thing that I do find is that this, what we're seeing like between Dean and Bella is a really good Dean mirror moment because she's finally admitting that she needs help. This is a little bit later in the episode. I'm jumping ahead. I'm sorry. We'll jump back after, but she's finally admitting that she needs help, but it's literally two minutes to midnight. Like it is too late at this point. They can't help her anymore. It's done. But it really reminded me of Dean who took what, like six to nine months to tell Sam that he didn't want to die. Like these two characters really are made from the same cloth. The parallels, the fact that this Dean foil for the last season and a bit is literally facing the same fate that he is bound to. Like that's just, that's just rough. It sort of makes me think like, what, what is Dean thinking in that moment? I think there's part of him that does see the, the cold part of him that kind of sees the revenge side of this, that yeah, I didn't have to kill her because she kind of brought it on herself. To him, he still believes this is, you know, she deserves it almost because she he doesn't understand what we understand. But I think there's also the part of him that sees, like, here is someone who they thought could potentially be helpful to them, befalling the same fate that he did. And she had 10 years to solve this. He had a year. Well, let's take a step back to the moment when Doc Benton tries to beg for his life and tells Dean that, you know, he can read him the formula. He's going to become immortal. And you can just tell that Sam is tempted. He is really tempted in that moment. He wants to say yes. (laughs) And it kind of felt like a callback, like I said earlier, to Justin Bellow, where Sam kind of flirts with the idea of like the end justifies the means. Whereas Dean, on the other hand, like thinks that the means really have to be just in and of themselves in order to be justified. We'll see a lot more of that in season four, and I'm going to prep a nice little philosophy lesson about consequentialism versus deontology once we get there, because these are very important schools of thought in philosophy and ethics, and Supernatural really goes into that idea in season four. I'll be curious to learn more about those as we get there. I feel like I know the two schools of thought, but not well enough to really discern them in this moment, so I'll be excited to kind of go in and talk about that. But yeah, this is very much the the Dean looking at the, like, yes, this is a solution to the problem, but like you said, it's not worth it. It's not, it doesn't justify the means. It's, you know, do I want to become a literal monster and have to kill other people for a chance of beating this thing and for a potentially immortal life? And what does that mean for Sam and his part of the deal and... Yeah, it's it's clear that I think even Sam, as much as he wants to accept it, he knows that Dean won't, which is why he's so he doesn't argue it ever. He doesn't really push. He kind of gives him a look like, eh, and then he's just like, yeah, it's not happening. I get it. But I think that with the right push, Sam would have accepted. And again, like it kind of brings back this whole like Sam's loss of humanity this season. The fact that he even considered this versus Dean shows a part of him that thinks and I think this kind of comes back to, and I haven't said this in a while, that chosen one complex. This is Sam saying, we're worth it. You being alive is more important than these potential other lives that might be affected by you not being there. But, but you know what? Sam's sense of ethics is always different when it comes to his brother. And we saw that in Faith as well. You know, like this isn't news to us. It's just that now it's a lot more... It's out there for the world to see. <laughs> like, yep. Shall we head to critical time? 
Yes, we shall. Who was behind this episode? Well, it was directed by Charles Beeson, who directed Sin City this season. And it was written by Sarah Gamble, who wrote The Kids Are All Right, Fresh Blood, Dream a Little Dream of Me with Catherine Humphreys and Justin Bellow. Can I just confirm, the last two that she wrote, she killed Henriksen and she killed, blanking on his name, Sterling K. Brown. She killed Gordon in Fresh Blood, and then she killed Henriksen and Justin Bellow, and now she killed Bella. Three characters I thoroughly enjoyed in this series that I wanted to see more of were off this season by the same writer for all three. I don't like this track record, Sarah. I don't like it. No, no one likes it, and it's only going to get worse. (laughs) So I'm just going to put it that way. Although I will say, and this is in in Sarah Gamble's uh, defense, she also wrote four episodes out of a 16-episode season. So that's a lot of episodes. And I'm not certain that she is the only one who has a say in who lives or dies. Maybe the writer's room just figured out she's the best at killing people? (laughs) Maybe. It's a weird talent, but good for you if that's the case. Yeah, well, I mean, we're not saying that, like, it's Sarah Gamble's fault if, you know, all these characters are dead. Because there's a lot of other things at play, you know. Lauren Cohen, who is playing Bella, had another contract starting soon, so she had to end this contract. Like, it was a, there were a lot of other things at play. Not a great track record for Sarah Gamble. It's more just a really weird coincidence. There you go. Let's put it this way. Do you have any lore for us? I figured I would look at something this episode touched upon a little lightly, and I thought I would give a very easy-to-consume description of it. Because I feel like outside of popular media, most people don't really know the history. So I would like to touch on alchemy for a moment. I'm going to say this and a lot of listeners will agree, but I feel like most people's introduction to alchemy, much like myself, was the anime Full Metal Alchemist, which is surprisingly accurate in a lot of little ways. And if not, the other thing that most people probably know is the what many would consider the holy grail of the alchemist, which is the Philosopher's Stone from our uh, from other popular media. But alchemy may be considered by some a pseudoscience, while others consider it a stepping stone towards modern chemistry. Both are surprisingly accurate descriptions of the, uh, the subject. Alchemy was, and still is, a combination of philosophy and science. An attempt to bridge the natural world and its physical components with the less natural world and more of the supernatural. Alchemy seek to solve problems, such as the creation of a philosopher's stone, uh, also known as the elixir of life. Uh, Another popular uh, goal of uh, alchemy was the panacea, a cure-all that would literally cure all. Another major staple of alchemy was the idea of purification, both of materials, such as turning base metals, I say with air quotes, into noble metals, the most famous example being the idea of turning lead into gold, but also the purification of humans, both the body through, as previously mentioned, immortality and curing everything, but also the soul and mind through more philosophical means. That would be what alchemy referred to as the magnum opus, their great work, the idea of a perfect human. While much of alchemy has been tried and tested and to no avail, as you can gather, we do not have a uh, perfected true cure for all in any disease or ailment, nor have we found the elixir of life. We have, however, seen some of the alchemical works with, you know, modifying of metals and other materials through different forms of chemical transformation act as a sort of jumping off point for some modern chemistry. I mean, the idea of affecting the base chemical composition of one material to create new materials 
is basically alchemy what it tried to be. And while the idea of perfecting the human soul through philosophy hasn't really happened, at least I don't consider it to be, we can look to alchemy for sources of many philosophical orders. Pythagoreanism, Platonism, Stoicism, Noctism, and even Hermetic philosophy. What you're talking about in terms of like the purification of the soul or like the transformation of the soul is something that's is kind of related to hermeneutical approaches because the whole idea is that when people have a conversation, it changes them in some way. And they're taking a turn together, being able to kind of like grow a little bit together uh, in their own way. And so to walk away a little bit transformed and changed and with growth, hopefully, right? The root here is that so many you know, philosophers we think of today that we look back on, like Plato, like Socrates, they at some point did dabble in alchemy because it was such a widely held belief and everything kind of tied back into it, that it's it's easy to see why so many philosophical orders sprung forth from it with their own branches of how do we do this? I mean, it's one thing to say, to purify the body and soul, what does that mean? And, you know, to some orders that means... One thing to some means another, you know, as you said, with the Hermetic Order, it was growing and learning and transforming oneself through learning and debating. One thing to kind of keep in mind is that science and philosophy used to be the same, the same thing. It used to be one and the same. Thinkers, people who thought things, were basically the people who made science advance at the time. Now, keeping in mind also that a lot of it was nonsense. Um, because there was no, but it's true because there was just no way of understanding certain things. Like for example, our blood temperature is not what decides our temperament. You know, this whole idea of like cold blooded, hot blooded, like it's still part of our vocabulary, but it's not true. (laughs) Your body temperature doesn't actually decide the type of person that you are. So that's kind of what I mean in terms of the nonsense that was truly believed at the time. But some and, and but like I said, some of it is still with us. So that those thoughts, those ideas, the idea that menstrual blood is dirty, for example, comes from that time, because it was seen as a way for the woman, for a woman's body to purify itself. And if it was ridding itself of this blood, then the blood blood must have been impure. And there you go. And this is how today we end up with thoughts like, "Oh, menstrual blood is gross." Yeah, like one of the examples in this I really love, and it's the one that I had the most trouble reading, is the the order of philosophy that kind of stemmed from Pythagoras. Like we all think of Pythagoras from what, like grade 10 math class with, you know, figuring out the side of a isosceles, tri- a right angle triangle or something. I can't remember what it was anymore. You know, Pythagoras made advances to mathematics. He also tried tried to apply these mathematical formulas to life and how you know everything came down to numbers and calculations and... You know, this eventually led into different things about how sound works and how different shapes have different meanings. And I mean, yeah, his order apparently had a secret suborder that involved following a sound to the end of the world. But hey, we can calculate the longest side of a triangle now sometimes. So, I mean, you win some, you lose some. Honestly, with these philosophers, that's exactly how you have to look at it. You win some, you lose some, and sometimes you lose big, sometimes you win big. <laughs> you throw spaghetti at the wall, some's in a stick, and a lot of it's going to hit yes. the floor. Exactly. There you go. We've all done it. We've all thrown spaghetti at the wall. Speaking of throwing spaghetti at walls, do you have any critiques for this week? <laughs> well, thanks. 
That sounded more insulting than admitted to. I, just I know, it really sounded insulting. I'm like, oh, okay, all right, cool, cool, cool. Nice to know what you think. <laughs> Tell me what you really think, Drew. <laughs> but you know what? This was a really heavy episode. So I really, I was thinking about making this segment a bit lighter <laughs> in order to kind of like brighten up the mood. If you, I don't know if I've told you this, but I've been binging Criminal Minds lately. You did mention it, yes. Been a really interesting experience because both shows, Supernatural and Criminal Minds, started in 2005 and ended in 2020 after a 15 year run. So they both kind of went through the same like world and political events, the same writer's strike in season three. And of course, they're not the same genre, so you can't really compare them per se. But you can tell that sometimes that they're happening at the same time. Let's put it that way. And there's something about this episode that just made me think about David Rossi going like, the unsub thinks that by stealing the organs of his victims, he'll achieve immortality. This could have been the crossover episode. (laughs) I know this could have been the crossover episode. Actually, there's so many Criminal Minds episodes that like dabble in the supernatural. I was really surprised about that. But that's a story for another day. And there's no real critique here. Like, I don't have a specific critique for for this, but it's kind of a reminder to myself that, like, these long-running shows, and I'm thinking about Criminal Minds, Supernatural, Grey's Anatomy, The Mentalist, Bones, like, they were all aware of each other, and they, well, very likely, anyway, I think, drew inspiration from one another over the years. And so it makes sense to see, like, an episode like one of these kind of making a commentary on another one of the shows. I like that though. It's just, it's kind of funny to see like where these shows do overlap and where you can like see like where one show may have suffered with something. Another one was a more successful or vice versa. Like I think the writer strike is a great example of this. I feel like it'd be a great exercise to go back and look at other shows in this era that suffered through the writer strike and what they did with it. I have to say that some, especially now having seen Criminal Minds, I do find that Supernatural particularly suffered from it, even compared to Criminal Minds. So I do think that some shows suffered a lot more from it than others, and I think Supernatural is one of those shows. I think it also depends on the production schedule. Like, if you were a show that knew you were coming to its end or you weren't sure about renewal, your writing process and the team you kept with you was probably a little smaller than a show that may have been confirmed already to have three more seasons in the bag kind of thing. So I guess behind the scene production for all these shows really would affect. And it depends on budget too, right? Like those are very important. I'm sure that Criminal Minds had a much bigger budget than Supernatural. Let's be very clear about that. Supernatural from the CW that is apparently failing miserably now that Supernatural's done? Shocker. (laughs) Okay, let's move on. (laughs) Would you have any personal reflection and call to action this week? Given how this episode wasn't super exciting, I kind of had a lot of time to myself while watching it to take note and think. The thing I took away the most was just that sometimes you can be given the answer you're looking for, but only in getting what you think you want do you realize it isn't what you needed. Oh, oh, that's such a good one. Okay, please, please tell me more about this. To really put text on subtext, Dean is officially given a solution to his problem. Here is, albeit a creature of the week slash once was or maybe still is a human, that's up to debate, who is basically at their control, 
offering to decipher his notes to give Dean immortality, which ultimately solves the problem of, you know, dying in a few days. He can't take it because as much as on paper, it's the solution that he needs. It comes with so many other caveats. It comes with so many other, you know, like terrible side ramifications. It's almost kind of like, you know, if you look at some of the really old stories of the monkey's paw, the idea of making a wish and not getting what you wanted. Uh, I think there's a famous old story of like from like way back when where the person made a wish on the monkey's paw to have the biggest house in his neighborhood. So every other house in the neighborhood burns down but his. Like you got what you wanted, but really was that what you wanted? My, my thought process beyond this was that sometimes we are looking for something and we think we found the answer because maybe it was the easy out. But is that easy out really worth the side effects or the ramifications of making that decision. When a situation presents itself, to really think about it and decide, is this the right choice for now? Or can I say no to this and do something better with myself? Mm, so to think long-term. Yeah. A bit more long-term rather than instant gratification. Oh, fully. Okay. Well, I think that that's very important. Definitely. Thank you. And yourself this week? Well, now I think that like yours was really an amazing takeaway. So I'm second guessing mine, but <laughs> I think for me, this episode was really about asking for help when you need it, you know, like ask for help, just ask for help. And that's something that I really struggle with personally, because like the message that was reinforced to me growing up was that I could only rely on myself for the things I wanted or the things I needed. And that's a really big thing to break that brain association because whenever I'm in a situation, my brain is because the literally, and there's a scientific explanation behind this, like the neurons in my brain are used to this specific like pathway of information. And so if I'm facing a problem, my very first thought is like, I need to solve this myself. The reality is that that's not true. I don't always need to solve it by myself and that's okay. And so I'm trying to do that in my day-to-day -day life. Like last week, I asked you and Rochelle uh, to help me brainstorm something because I just couldn't figure it out by myself. And if I hadn't asked for help, it would have just looked like I was procrastinating on something when I wasn't. I just didn't know how to do it. So yeah, ask for help. I think that's an amazing, amazing thought to come out of this. I, I like it more than mildly honest. No. <laughs> I love how we love each other's reflections. <laughs> shall we head on down and see what our community has to share with us? Yes, we shall. This week, we have a voicemail from Nix. Hi, Karim Wayward. Um, firstly, I want to apologize for my accent. English is not my fair first language. But uh, I just listened to your Croatone episode. I really enjoyed it. I also would like to bring your attention to the phrases Dean says a lot throughout the show, which are, I don't swing that way when he says he's not interested in men, which, come on, we all know it's not true. And I'll go down swinging when he says about dying. So I was wondering what you can say about it. Actually, Nix, we're the ones who have to apologize because we know that you sent in this voicemail quite some time ago through Instagram, but it took us a while to get to it. So our apologies. Thank you so much for sending this to us because we've 
I think we've talked about this a couple episodes ago, but you're kind of like providing us with an incentive to go a little bit deeper into our thought process about this. Because I kind of, I remember when we talked about it, I kind of like left it at that. I'm like, oh, I don't know what to think about it. I'll just leave it there. But in this one episode, it was in Justin Bellow, actually, where he says, oh, I don't swing that way. And then he goes, oh, I'll go down swinging right after, like when he feels safer. I think that in a way, specifically, I'm going to talk about the context in Justin Bellow, because in this, in that context, it really felt like, or actually, does he say it too in, uh, maybe he says it too where he says both. He says, in Croatoan, sorry. So Dean will say, I don't swing that way. And then later in the episode, he'll say, I'll go down swinging. So he sa- But I think he says that both in Croatoan and in, oh, that's interesting, in Justin Bellow. I think to me, it shows that Dean has some very specific social cues that he looks for in order to feel comfortable discussing who he really is. And I think that whenever he feels threatened, he's going to say things like, I don't swing that way. I don't do this. I'm not like that. You know, like the whole bravado thing that we're kind of like used to see, seeing him do like, oh, I'm not gay, you're gay kind of thing. Like, <laughs> But then once he's comfortable with somebody, then he can he can own up to who he is. I'll go down swinging. This is who I am. I'm proud of this. This is something that's important to me. And the first time we see that happening, we see it happening with Sam, where it kind of feels like that moment where he's he's opening up to him, right, in Croatoan. And then that second moment that we see is in Justin Bello, where he's opening up to, to Victor. So I think that's what I think about that, Nix. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I that's what I think about it. I feel like I want a very similar thought process. Uh, first of all, thank you for the voicemail and do not apologize for the accent. I have said before, I enjoy hearing accents from all over the world. It makes me feel so much more like special that our show has such a reach, so it like warms my heart. But yeah, I think I think you put it really well, Mary. It's almost like he has like a coded language he uses. So in his own mind, he knows what he's saying, like to use those specific expressions when there are literally thousands of ways to like imply what he wants to imply, but to specifically choose those expressions seems weirdly specific because in his mind, he knows what those mean. These are things he's, as we've discussed with Dean in the past, having to hide who he truly is, having to hide his sexuality and his interest in men from himself even he picks up his own way of doing this and for the most part there's the defensive deflection side which we've seen with the i don't swing that way or the you know any time that he gets accused of being gay and he goes well sam's the gay one not me or even when he just has a chance to call sam gay he does it but then the few times he's comfortable around people whether it be victor who we kind of allude to there being a bit of a crush on or uh when he meets that actor from um Hollywood Babylon that he recognizes him a really bit part in a movie. Like when he's around people that he feels weirdly comfortable about, or he lets himself shine through, he can break down those barriers and admit to things or say things that he wouldn't say normally because it would come across as maybe people will figure out who I really am. Aww. All to say, oh, Dean. Dean. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for the voicemail. Let's go make some deals. Let's go. 
So what do you have on the table this week? I've talked about this before, but I know that Lauren Cohen was going off to become Maggie in The Walking Dead. And I know that the writer's strike made it like really difficult to develop her character over only one season. But I really feel like Bella deserved better. I mean, I I would have loved to see a longer arc with her where she feels torn between like her old ways of trading with demons and accepting help from the Winchesters, you know, moving past her inability to trust and her hyper-independence. Even if it ended with her dying anyway, I just would have loved more growth in her character. I agree completely. I feel like this was kind of the deal I wanted to make, and then I saw that you had it, so I was really happy that we got to discuss it regardless. It really feels like, from a critical angle, this was rushed. Like, they had a bigger story for her, and they realized they one, she was leaving, there was a writer's strike, and there was limitations, and they kind of had to cut it short. Because so much gets revealed and dealt with in this episode that it really feels like, we had a bigger plan. Let's just cram that extra season's worth of content for her into, like, two, like, scenes. Exactly. And we can't really, we understand that there are constraints on storytelling when it comes to network TV. Like, let's be very clear. But in this particular instance, I find that it really leaves me with kind of a bitter taste in my mouth when it comes to the treatment of this particular character. Because, again, because her shortened narrative arc coincides with her being a woman, and we know you know, that Supernatural has not been the greatest in terms of treating women fairly or treating female characters fairly. It just, again, comes across as the show not caring for its female characters, unfortunately. No, very well said. Unfortunately, this season, and again, we can make excuses all day, but this is a case of just another character who had a lot of potential, unfortunately, having to leave too soon. Exactly. For myself this week... It's a small nitpick, and I kind of briefly touched on it earlier in story time, and it's the idea that John really botched this case. <laughs> we like you've said, but you said in the story time, we've seen John encounter things and be wrong or make mistakes or just not finish something because it got away. But this is the first time that it's just like, oh no, no. John claims he took care of this. Like, clearly didn't. Like, I'm sorry. You took out its heart and then said, well, that's it. It clearly can't come back from that. You literally burn bodies on the daily. Why wouldn't you have burnt this body? I am still convinced the brothers could have burnt this body and have been done with it. And the fridging thing was mostly for comedic effect. I don't think that there is a better way of talking about this than to say that their entire lives... Sam and Dean, particularly Dean, are cleaning up John's messes. This just to me is the first time where it's like we've crossed the road from like John isn't good to John plain out just screwed up more so than he has with the raising of his children. (laughs) You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano hosted by Marie Vigoureux and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira and Michelle, for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Nix for their message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a three-minute voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube using at CarryingWayward and leave us a rating and a review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to patreon.com slash carryingwayward. Carry on our wayward friends. How many theaters have no vacancies? That's a creepy theater thing to say. Uh, We're full of ghosts and terrible one-act shows. Please come back another day.